Editing Charlie, jumping in here for a minute. I don't usually do this. I don't give you timestamps on when the cases start when I stop talking about the history of the tribe, but this time I will because it is nearly half the episode. And if you are here for the case discussion, I don't want you to click out because you don't want the history part and not listen to these unsolved cases because it's very important to get the word out. So I think the first 15 minutes is very important. It talks about some things that happened in the 50s and 60s that do inform on today on tribal sovereignty. I think it's very important. But if you are just here to listen to the cases, go ahead and skip 15, 16 minutes of the episode, and that is where the cases will begin. I hope you listen to all of it. I would not have put it in here if I didn't believe it was important to share. But I also don't want people to stop listening and not get to the cases portion because getting word out about these unsolved cases is something the Menominee Tribal Police have asked the public to do. So skip about 15, 16 minutes and you will be in the case discussion. I want to send birthday shout outs to some of my patrons this month. Happy birthday to Jennifer, Madeline, Ellen, Miranda, Renee, Brenda, Barbara. Katie, Lior, and Tara. I hope you have an amazing birthday and a great celebration for the entire year. The Menominee tribe has known adversity and triumph as grassroots efforts have preserved the land and the culture of the tribe. Among those efforts is work towards solving the problem of missing and murdered indigenous people, not just from the Menominee tribe, but across the state of Wisconsin. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to today's episode. We are going to cover a couple of cases today, focusing on the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin. For those who may have jumped in to this episode as their first Crime Lines episode, first of all, welcome. Second, whenever I cover cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women, I start with the history of the tribe or the area, at least a snapshot of it, because we all know we did not learn enough about this in school. Most of my episodes are not in this format. Most just jump right into the case. But this particular topic, learning more about the Menominee tribe, taught me something I had never heard before. Never. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a movement to terminate tribes, to cut off federal recognition to all tribes starting with a few, and the Menominee were one of the very first to be terminated. To start with, the Menominee Tribes Reservation is one that still exists near their ancestral lands, just 60 miles away from the mouth of the Menominee River and less than an hour northwest of Green Bay, Wisconsin. The river is at the center of the Menominee creation story, with the ancestral bear having emerged from the ground at the mouth of the river and then taking the form of a human. 
The tribe currently has over 8,700 members, with fewer than half living on the reservation. The main reasons for living off the reservation are job opportunities and the lack of infrastructure. But it wasn't always like that, even after colonization. At the time of the American Revolution in 1776, the Menominee lands were about 10 million acres. The United States as a country was barely formed when we entered what is called the Treaty Period, which is where the U.S. government started making hundreds of treaties with tribes. It started in 1778 and went to about 1871. I looked up the percentage of treaties that had terms violated by the U.S. government, and the answer was 100%. Not a single treaty between the U.S. and a tribe from the treaty period was ever fully honored. The Menominee tribal lands dwindled during the treaty period until it was down to about 235,000 acres. That is a loss of about 97 to 98% of their land. However, the Menominee people still prospered. They had a large forestry and lumber operation that provided a lot of income to the tribe, but that would change in the 1950s. Some reformers had come on the scene determined to change how the U.S. government interacted with tribes. And this actually goes back to the early 1800s. That is when the U.S. government took on what is called the Federal Trust Responsibility to the Native Americans. It was and is a duty to protect tribal rights and property. I'm not saying that they did this well, that they are doing this well currently, but I'm just saying this is the rule. Then in the 1930s, there were some policies that started more strongly favoring tribal sovereignty, and assimilation had very briefly stopped being the number one policy priority. The federal trust responsibility and its protections were strengthened during this time. But this was a very brief time, and it was not without pushback. And these so-called reformers in Congress, who really gained traction in the 1950s, wanted to do away with the federal trust responsibility as a whole. They didn't go about presenting it the way others had in the past, with obvious racist intent. They didn't talk about assimilation or use phrases like, kill the Indian, save the man. Instead, they framed it as the trust responsibility hindered economic and personal growth for the tribes and their enrolled members as individuals. They claimed the system had set up a dependence between the tribes and the government that didn't allow the tribes to truly be free. They were framing this as the emancipation of Native Americans from the government that controlled them. And the mission of these reformers hit on a few main points. First, they wanted to repeal any laws that discriminated against Native Americans or gave them a different status than other citizens. Then, they wanted to disband the Bureau of Indian Affairs and delegate the various tasks to other agencies basically decentralize the federal oversight on tribes and tribal issues. 
And finally, they wanted to end federal supervision of Native Americans entirely, both as individuals and as tribes. Ending discrimination and ending federal interference in tribal affairs sounded good. And that's the problem. It sounded good. But interestingly enough, it was actually anti-communism that fueled a lot of this. This is the time of McCarthyism and the extreme anti-communist fear-mongering that occurred during the Cold War. A lot of people thought the U.S. had to stand together to fight for democracy, and having hundreds of sovereign nations within the country didn't do that. And a lot of tribes governed themselves in a communal way. To some people, communalism and communism were just too close together. And the reformers were also viewing the federal money spent supporting the tribes as welfare payments, rather than what it really was, which was government funding. Not unlike the funding the federal government provides to states and cities to pay for infrastructure. States take federal money all day, every day. Some states take more money from the federal government than they have paid in. And we never call that welfare. Removing the federal trust responsibility was the goal, and this would also remove protections over tribal lands. They wanted to end the sovereignty of tribes and assimilate tribal lands and assets into the United States fully, including getting rid of the communal governance. Reservations would then become cities or counties within a state. But removing the trust responsibility in one swoop was far too much. It would have been too big, too sudden, and had dire consequences immediately. So they approached this from a different angle. The trust responsibility only applies to federally recognized tribes and their enrolled members. Rather than get rid of the trust responsibility, the idea was to start removing the federal recognition from the tribes one by one. From the start of this in 1953 to 1964, around 100 tribes lost their status as a federally recognized tribe. The Menominee were among the first in 1954 when the Menominee Termination Act passed Congress. The reason they were chosen early on was because they were economically secure. The Bureau of Indian Affairs had actually prepared a list of tribes they believed were prosperous enough that they could be self-sustaining immediately after federal funds were removed. The Menominee had that successful lumbering enterprise, and they had an $8.5 million judgment coming their way. They had recently sued the U.S. government for mismanaging their lumber business. The Menominee did not want to lose their federal recognition as a tribe. Yes, they had an issue with the government and government oversight when their business was mismanaged. But they were able to seek remedy in the courts with success they didn't want to lose the protections being a federally recognized tribe afforded them. But in the end, they didn't really have a say. 
They were told that they were going to be terminated anyway, and if they did it with consent and didn't fight it, they would get their $8.5 million judgment. If the Menominee tribe fought it, the government would not pay them the judgment. Faced with this heavy-handed coercion tactic, the tribal council did eventually agree. The termination of their federal recognition was not immediate. They were given time to organize to figure out what came next. In 1961, Menominee County was formed in Wisconsin on tribal land, and it was treated now like a county and not a reservation. It immediately became the poorest county in the state, and that is because of the sparse population. There was virtually no tax base to pay for infrastructure. The loss of federal funds to pay for things people needed, like a fire department, utilities, schools, and so on, could not be made up for by incoming taxes. There simply were not enough people. Even the local hospital, which had been run and funded through the Office of Indian Affairs and later the Indian Health Services, which are both federal programs, had to shut down. The lumber and forestry aspect of the tribe was incorporated into a company, and all the Menominee were considered shareholders, which was a short-term success as far as individuals went. This was actually a very similar setup to what we discussed about how Alaska Native lands are managed. But in this case, the business started dropping off and the actual physical structures, like the buildings, needed repairs, and there just was not enough money to cover it. And one large company cannot employ everybody. Those who stayed in Menominee County experienced an increasing drop in standard of living. Those who left to find opportunities and jobs elsewhere experienced a decreased connection to their culture. Of the other tribes that also found themselves either terminated or slated for termination, absolutely none of them were a success story. This was a failed policy. At the time of the vote to terminate, the Menominee tribal assets were valued at $10 million. Ten years later, it was valued at $300,000. To raise money, the tribe had sold off land to developers, which then caused even more issues. But it also inadvertently solved the problem, or at least it took the first steps. When tribal members voted on what they thought was a general economic plan, they were surprised to learn it actually was a plan to sell off tribal lands. So they banded together and they formed a group called Determination of Rights and Unity for Menominee Stockholders, abbreviation was DRUMS, and it was led by James White and Ada Deer. They were able to halt the development project. And then they turned their attention to having the tribe's federal status reinstated. And in 1973, they succeeded. President Richard Nixon, who was largely anti-termination and pro-sovereignty for the tribes, restored the Menominee tribe's federal recognition. The tribe has since spent decades 
rebuilding what was lost, both economically and culturally, and it's a work that continues. The Menominee took on land developers. They took on the leadership of a corporation overseeing their lands. They took on the federal government multiple times. And in the end, they won. And that is the backdrop of the Menominee tribe. So it shouldn't surprise you to know that their community activism continues to this day. And one issue is that of missing and murdered indigenous people. The Menominee Tribal Police currently have four unsolved cases that they are actively publicizing as ones that they are working on and want the public's help in solving. Two are older cases from the 1980s and two are more recent. The first case was one that was sent in to me by a listener with the screen name Overshare. Usually, I think to ask what your real name is if I see a screen name, but in this case, I completely forgot. But thank you, you know who you are, for sending this over because it gave me a chance to highlight both the work of the tribe and also these other cases that need publicity. Ray Elaine Turtelot was 18 years old when she went to a birthday party on October 14, 1986. She was a new mom to a baby girl who was only two months old at the time. The party was on the Menominee Indian Reservation, which is where she lived, and it was small, just six or seven people. So everyone at the party saw Ray there. At one point during the evening, Ray said she wanted to go home, and a friend gave her a ride. Like I said, she didn't live that far away, but the driver said that when they got to the house, Ray had changed her mind. She didn't want to go inside. So the two drove around for a bit and then went back to the party. No one remembers the timeline from that night too clearly. It's not like they were sitting around staring at the clock. But the witnesses do remember Ray coming back. And then when the party was over, she left probably around midnight. She got a ride with two other people, and they said they dropped her off safe and sound. But Ray never made it home. She was reported missing the next day. Her family did not believe from the start that she was staying away voluntarily. Anytime Ray would go stay with friends or have a sleepover somewhere, she always told her mom where she was going, who she was with, that sort of thing. Ray hadn't seemed unhappy before the party or during the party. She wasn't anxious or distressed or anything like that. So her mom would have expected her to come home or at least call. Of course, there's always hope that there was a misunderstanding somewhere. Maybe Ray forgot to tell her mom about spending the night somewhere or she thought she mentioned it and she hadn't or She made an impulsive and spontaneous decision, like 18-year-olds tend to do, and just didn't think to talk to her mom about it. But a few days after the birthday party, Ray was supposed to be in a friend's wedding, something she was really looking forward to. When she missed that moment, a lot of hope was lost. There was a massive search of the woods around where Ray was last seen, and the police were very clear 
that everyone at the party had been cooperating with the investigation. A psychic was consulted to no avail. Five months after Ray went missing, in March 1987, the tribal police chief told the press that he believed Ray was dead, and he had even identified a suspect. But due to the lack of evidence, they just couldn't move forward on it. And this suspect has never been publicly named. About a month after the police chief had made this remark about believing Ray was dead, he was proven right. On April 10, 1987, a body was found in a remote area of the reservation. It was clear the body had been there for a while, and due to the decomposition from spending months in a watery area, the body had to be sent to Milwaukee for examination and identification. Though Ray was quickly identified as one of the most likely matches for the body, her mother Josephine heard about the body being found through the grapevine. The authorities had not reached out and even told her about the possibility before others did, including the media. Ray's body was identified, and it was believed she was murdered. The FBI did come in since they have jurisdiction in the cases of serious crimes that occur on the reservation. They have worked this case alongside the Menominee Tribal Police. Over the years, they have compiled a list of people of interest. The police haven't given much along the lines of information or details on leads they're following or information about the crime itself. In 2016, it was announced that a new investigation was occurring. The hope was that after 30 years, some people would be more willing to talk. The police, however, are still not talking much to the media. They have remained tight-lipped on most aspects of this investigation. As far as I can tell, even digging through the newspaper archives, they have not released details on how Ray was found, who found her, or even how she was killed. There is a reward in this case. The FBI and the Menominee Tribe are offering $20,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Ray's death. The picture that you will usually see accompanying this case is one of Ray from when she was about 16 or 17 years old. She's in full traditional dress, including a beaded headpiece and a sash. She was the Menominee Princess that year, and it is a really striking photograph that catches your attention. We've talked about photographs affecting how people connect with a case before. Use an obvious mugshot, and it turns people off. But in this case, they used a photograph that really stands out in people's minds. People are drawn to it, and they remember the case. Ray's case should be remembered for reasons other than this picture. Her daughter is grown now and deserves to know what happened to her mother, a woman she never had a chance to know. 
But if that picture is what it takes to draw people into the story and want to come forward to help, then it is doing its job. There is a case, another cold case from the 1980s that the tribal police are looking at, except they haven't released any photograph in this case. Good or bad, I can't find anything. Even in a press conference that talked about her case, they had photographs of the other people we're talking about today, but not one of her. This is the 1980 disappearance of Lisa Ninham, and I want to bring it up even though I have pretty much nothing to give you. Like I said, I couldn't even find a picture. I couldn't find any early reporting. All I know is that Lisa Lynn Ninham was 16 years old when she was reported missing from the Menominee Reservation at some point in 1980. The police have said tips have come in, leads have been followed up, and it is considered an open investigation. She is presumed deceased. She was listed as having predeceased her father in his obituary. A May 1987 article mentioned that there was going to be a federal grand jury in Ray Tortolot's case and an active reinvestigation into Lisa's disappearance. But again, the article said nothing more than that. While the tribal police have said they are still investigating this case, that's all they've said. I wanted to include Lisa because. What we don't do here at Crime Lines is let someone be forgotten just because there isn't enough information. I'm sure Lisa's surviving family would like some answers. The next case I want to talk about happened much more recently in June 2020 with the disappearance of 22-year-old Caitlin Kelly. She is an enrolled Menominee tribal member And her disappearance did bring more attention to these older cases. I was able to connect with Caitlin's mother, Michelle, for this episode, and I want to thank her for speaking with me. As I'm recording this, it's been over eight months since Caitlin went missing, and so this is still very fresh, a very fresh pain for Michelle and Caitlin's loved ones. It takes a lot to have to repeat the story over and over again to just keep the story out in the media. So I wanted to give that a voice and tell her that I appreciate that we were able to connect. And what I heard about Caitlin is that she is a very outgoing person, whether it was hanging out with family or hanging out with friends. She made it to all the family celebrations and she was just always on the go. Caitlin has a son, Kodiak, who was two at the time she went missing. She and his father, Kodiak Sr., were on again, off again, always trying to make it work out for his sake. But even when they weren't together, they co-parented well and got along. Caitlin is also a hard worker. She liked to have nice things for herself and her little boy. In 2019, she and her son moved to an apartment in Shawano, which is about 15 to 20 minutes from the reservation. But Caitlin still spent a lot of time with her family, particularly since she didn't like being alone very much. She'd often have her mom either spend the night at her apartment or she'd even go home. On June 18th, 2020, Michelle reported Caitlin missing to the police 
after she hadn't heard from her in two days. It was really unusual to have two days with no contact from Caitlin. Even one day was a bit much because Michelle's a mom. She's a worrier. Caitlin understood that, so she would be in the habit of calling her mom to check in. Knowing that Caitlin was heading back to her apartment on the night of June 16th from the reservation, Michelle would have expected her to call when she either got there or first thing the next morning. That was just something Caitlin did to help Michelle worry less. So when no call came on the 17th, all day, Michelle then called the police on the 18th. Another concern was social media. Caitlin was an active poster, yet she hadn't posted anything. Her son's father, Kodiak Sr., was able to get into her Facebook account, so the police do have her information from there, and they also have access to her Gmail account. But they have not found her physical phone. They have not released information on cell phone pings, towers, or any of this digital information and how it helps or doesn't help the investigation. We just don't know. But Michelle assured me that Caitlin always had her phone on her and she was always using social media, texting with people, keeping in contact. We know holding back information is always part of keeping the integrity of the investigation, but I will say the cell phone information is something I'm always curious about. We do know that the police quickly started building out a timeline of Caitlin's movements after she was reported missing. They learned that Caitlin was on the Menominee Reservation on the night of June 16th, like her mother had said. She was seen by a witness who drove past her as she walked. The witness said Caitlin was heading eastbound around 10.30 p.m. towards the village of Kashina, which is located on the reservation. When the driver came back 15 minutes later and drove down that same road, Caitlin was gone. The area where she was last seen was the same basic area where Ray Tortolet's body had been found, which immediately put people on edge. The police believe Caitlin must have gotten into a car between 10.30 and 10.45. That sighting of her walking on the road was initially believed to be the last sighting of Caitlin, so the initial searches were on the reservation. There are a few lakes near Kashina as well as Wolf River, and they were searched to some extent. The woods were searched and the roads. But a short time after this, it was announced that Caitlin had actually been seen after this point, between 11 or 11.30 on June 16th until about 3 a.m. on the 17th, they placed her at her apartment, which is about eight miles from where she was last seen on the reservation. And that confirms the investigator's initial belief that she got into a car because otherwise it would have been a two-hour walk. Clearly, someone drove her home. The police want to know who that person was. But so far, no one has come forward. After learning that Caitlin had made it back to her apartment, a private search and rescue team from Madison, Wisconsin, came in to search 50 acres of wooded area behind Caitlin's apartment. 
They brought in dogs, but according to the police, nothing was found. The tribal police have also asked people to keep their eye out when they're outside, whether it's hunting or camping or hiking or just enjoying a day at the lake. They want people to call the authorities if they see anything even remotely suspicious. The FBI is involved in the case, and Michelle told me that they have been very good at keeping in touch with her and giving her updates. Unfortunately, the updates are often that there really isn't anything to update. The group Caitlin was hanging out that last night she was seen are not people Michelle knows very well. Caitlin didn't keep things from her. It's just that it was a relatively new friend group, so Michelle just didn't have the chance to know them yet. Caitlin was seeing a man at the time who was a little bit older than her, but it is someone that Michelle actually knew through family, so she hadn't been worried about him. After Caitlin went missing, she did learn that he had some previous run-ins with the police, which, of course, then concerned her, and we've talked about that before, that when something like this happens, you start wondering who knows what are people who you thought they were. Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about this with the Christy Moon case. Her daughter bumps into people around town who knew her mother, and she has to wonder what they know about Christy's case. And another thing that Caitlin's family has in common with Christy Moon's family is the longing for answers and the grief that comes with not knowing. Michelle told me that Caitlin's little boy looks just like her, and they know how much Caitlin loves him. The prayer is that Caitlin is found and can come home to him. There is a security camera image of Caitlin from the day she went missing, which is very helpful for knowing what she was wearing and how she was wearing her hair that day and that sort of thing. I will post it on social media. Maybe it will jog someone's memory, someone who saw her that day and might know something. Caitlin is five foot two. She weighs about 140 pounds. She has brown eyes and brown hair. She was last seen wearing a gray t-shirt over a black swimsuit style top, blue jean shorts, and black flip-flops. The Menominee Tribe is offering a $5,000 reward for any information on the whereabouts of Caitlin. And if you have any information on the cases of Ray, Sarah, or Caitlin, call 715-994-1307. I will leave that phone number in the description. In July, a month after Caitlin disappeared, a task force on missing and murdered Indigenous women was formed in Wisconsin. The state attorney general actually formed it after the Wisconsin legislature declined to even put a similar measure to vote, a bill that was largely crafted with the help of indigenous women. The state legislation wouldn't even vote on it, giving you an idea of where missing and murdered indigenous women are on their priority list. The attorney general, though, had it high on his priority list, and he didn't want to wait until another legislative session to hope they'd get around to voting on it. So he decided to start the task force anyway. And one of the biggest jobs is data collection. Not only do they need data to identify the problem, 
find common factors, and work on preventative measures. They need the data to get funding. Resources follow data. And if you can't prove you need the money, no one is giving it to you. The task force is finding similar issues in Wisconsin as others have around the country. There are just no formal studies that have been completed that they can lean on. The information collected by police departments isn't always accurate or complete enough. In Wisconsin, it actually only goes back to the late 1990s, so Ray and Lisa's cases aren't even officially on the list. And even after the crime statistics started being logged, people who are indigenous are often miscategorized when it comes to race. There also needs to be more cooperation between city and county law enforcement and the tribal police. It is tricky because of jurisdiction at times. However, I have heard that the Menominee Tribal Police have a good working relationship with both the FBI and law enforcement in the surrounding areas. So thankfully for these cases, they do have that support and the interagency working together. But that isn't always the case. I listened to a great interview on WPR with Kristen Welch, who is a Menominee Tribal member who is also on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force. She was asked what people could do to help, and I thought that was a very good question. And what she recommended was that people share the stories. If you get an alert come through about a missing Indigenous woman or girl, make the time, make the space on your social media account to retweet it, to share it on Facebook, to do whatever you can do on Instagram to share things. I'm not good at Instagram. I don't know. But do what you can to get the word out about cases. In a different interview with her on a news station, she said that this is not an indigenous problem. This is an everybody problem and an everybody solution. That is such an easy way to help. And I'm going to leave a list of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls Facebook pages in the show notes. You can follow those on Facebook and very easily share what they post. And before we wrap this up, I do want to share the fourth unsolved case the Menominee Tribal Police are getting word out about now. Robert Lyons was 24 years old when he went missing on June 4th, 2017. He was riding his ATV on the reservation near the village of Kishina. He was wearing shoes and shorts, but no shirt. His family never saw him again. Five days later, his ATV was found abandoned and flipped on its side. Robert did not have a cell phone with him or even a shirt, which indicates to his family that he didn't plan on being gone very long, certainly not days and now years. The Menominee Tribe is offering a $5,000 reward for any information on the whereabouts of Robert. Robert Lyons is described as 5'9", weighing about 120 pounds. He has black hair and brown eyes. He does have some tattoos. The word Menominee is across his shoulders on the back. He has an eagle on the back of his neck. He has tattoos on his forearms. He has native pride tattooed down one of his legs. And to anyone with information about Robert Lyons, you can call the Menominee Dispatch Center at 715 
799-3881. All numbers will be in the description. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 